0: Um, If you have your Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 5. We've been in the study of John for quite some time now. The last several weeks we've uh, covered John chapter 5, which has been an incredible study. Uh, We've seen Jesus heal this man who had been ill for 38 years. And uh, then he faces some backlash from the Pharisees because of his violation of the Sabbath and Uh, It's been a just rising persecution or tension against Jesus in this particular text. And we're going to see that continue this morning. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at verses 41 through 47. That will finish our time in John chapter 5. Now, I'm going to actually read from 39 to 47, but we'll really just be focused on 41 through 47. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version may differ from what you have. Hey, just a side note, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, feel free to grab one off the table back here. We have a couple uh, there that are our gift to you. So if you don't own one, please take one with you when you leave this morning. So we'll go to John chapter 5, and we'll start at verse 39 and read to the end. Father in heaven, we are thankful for this opportunity to fellowship together. Lord, we're thankful that you have given us your word to meditate on, to shape, and to mold us. Father, as we look at this text together this morning, I pray that you would be glorified through our time of study. Through the preaching and teaching of your word, I ask that Christ would be exalted Father, help us to see what we cannot see on our own to illuminate the truth of these verses that it would challenge us, yet encourage us. Again, I ask that through this time, you would be exalted, that this would be all to the praise of your name. Help me, Father. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, there are a lot of wonderful relationships that we can have in life. But I think few are greater than the gift of marriage. God has given us marriage as this wonderful covenant, this great reminder of his grace and his saving love. I'm sure many of you in here know my beautiful wife, Tabitha. Her and I have been married for five years now. And just a little side note, today is actually her birthday. So if you see her, yeah, we can clap for that. She's probably going to be mad that I embarrassed her. It's okay. We'll work it out later. Um, If you see her, yeah, just make her feel awkwardly loved today. But the reason that I bring up marriage is because, so when I decided or we decided to get married, there were several things that had to take place, right? I had to ask her first and she had to say yes, right? But then there were some things that were required for us to truly and legitimately enter into this relationship that we call marriage. We couldn't just call each other husband and wife. We couldn't just move in together and use those titles on one another, right? We had to have an ordained minister. We had to have him perform a ceremony for us where we exchanged vows. We had to have a marriage license. There were many things that were required for this relationship of husband and wife to be legitimate. But we all agree with that. We're all on the same page, right? Okay, you may say, well, what in the world does that have to do with our text this morning well in the same way jesus shows us that there is something required for a person to be in legitimate relationship with god and that is to acknowledge his son jesus christ to receive and believe him that is required for a person to have legitimate relationship with god see here jesus is putting forth this staggering truth, something that is very disruptive and off-putting to his hearers, something that's going to turn the theology of these Pharisees on their ear. And it's not just a truth that they had to grapple with, but it is something that we all must reconcile as well. You see, Jesus, in no uncertain terms, he's essentially saying here that to deny the Son is to deny the Father. In other words, if you don't love and receive and worship Jesus, you cannot love and receive and worship God. You see, rejection of Christ only demonstrates that God's love has not penetrated your heart. It shows that you do not have any true and lasting life, that you are still a dead man who is dead in his trespasses and sins. Again, what Jesus says to these men here is very offensive to them. It's off-putting. Not only that they claim that he violated the Sabbath, but then it's the things that Jesus says that causes them to seek his life. He's so abrasive, so offensive to these men. You see, Jesus comes to this group of religious leaders who were openly opposing him and seeking to persecute him. They're plotting to take his life. And he presents to them an earth-shattering truth. These religious men, to them he says, you don't have the love of God in you. And I know that. And why does he know that? He says, because you won't receive me. See, as we look at this text before us this morning, we are learning a monumental truth. See, honoring Christ is mandatory to honor God. We must acknowledge and receive his son in order to be in right relationship with creator God. There's no way around that. Worshiping Christ is how we worship God. Unfortunately, again, as we look at this text, we're going to see a group of Jewish leaders who refuse to receive Jesus the Son of God. And as we examine this passage, uh, Jesus tells us why. It's going to shed light on their ulterior motives and this desire that they have that is contrary to seeking the glory of God. And ultimately what Jesus will say to them is, I don't even need to accuse you. There's going to be one who will accuse you and it'll be Moses and the very scriptures that you've committed your lives to studying. See, for our time together this morning, I have a very simple outline, just three points. So if you're taking notes, I'll give them to you now, and you can write them down, and it'll help you follow along, hopefully. So three simple points. Number one, we see the rejection of Jesus. Number one is the rejection of Jesus. Number two is the desire for man's glory. The desire for man's glory. And number three is the indictment of Moses and the Scriptures. The indictment of Moses and the Scriptures. Again, a very simple outline. And my prayer and my aim this morning is a very simple one. Honestly, it's not overly complicated. My hope is that those of you who are in here this morning that may not have relationship with Jesus Christ would see the glory of this wonderful Savior and be compelled to follow him and commit yourself to him today. And to all the believers in the room, for those of us in here today who say that we are indeed in fellowship with Christ Jesus that his glory would be illuminated in such a way and that you would be reminded of this glorious Savior and the world's desperate need for him, that you would go forth proclaiming the message of salvation in Christ alone. That's it. That's the simple goal for our time together this morning. So let's walk through these verses together. Again, section number one is the rejection of Jesus, and we see that in verses 41 through 43a, the first half of verse 43. So again, what's happening here is Jesus has been confronted by these men for his quote-unquote Sabbath violation. If you recall, he heals this man and tells him to pick up his mat and walk, and then they say, who told you to do that? And he points the attention to Jesus, and they're saying, well, you told this man to violate the Sabbath. Not only that, but Jesus has made some outrageous claims to be equal to God. So again, there's tension and opposition rising from this men. And what does Jesus do? He responds to his critics, to his opposers, and he gives them four testimonies to corroborate what he's saying, four witnesses that can support what Jesus claims. And he gives the uh, testimony of John the Baptist, of God the Father, of the miraculous works that he's doing, and then finally the scriptures themselves. What does Jesus say? He tells these men that the scriptures bear witness to me. Now, given that the Pharisees had a commitment to studying the scriptures and they had incredible faith and uh, trust in God's word, see, we begin to understand why what Jesus says here is so offensive to them, why it presses them so much. See, that had to throw them for a loop. I mean, just imagine here is this man from Nazareth who's just a carpenter, who's the son of Mary and Joseph, who they would have known. And now he comes to these devoutly religious men who had spent their lives studying the scriptures. And he says, guess what? All that you've read and studied is pointing to me. What an outrageous claim this sounds like. Yet this is the claim that Jesus makes about himself. You see, although the scriptures they had studied bore witness to Christ, Jesus says in verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Again, this serves to demonstrate how blind and how lost these men actually were. You see, for all their study of the Scriptures, for their reverence and esteem for the Word of God, for all the zeal and passion they had to study the Scriptures, they could not see the one that the Scriptures spoke about standing right in front of them. The one that Moses wrote about, the Savior that the Scriptures pointed to, was standing in front of them. And they couldn't see it. They wouldn't have them. And we'll talk about that more in just a minute. But in verse 41, on the heels of this overwhelming testimony that Jesus offers, we see an overwhelming rejection of Christ the Savior. Let's look at verse 41. Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. And we'll just stop right there. Now, Jesus has said back in Verse 34 here of chapter 5, he says, I do not receive the testimony of man. But here he says, I do not receive glory from men either. Now, this is a bit of a loaded statement because I think it has really two meanings. So I want to explain those briefly here. Now, first, Jesus is saying that he doesn't receive glory from men. And what he's pointing to is the reality that the men that he had came to save do not ascribe glory to him see, they fail to glorify and honor him as the son of God. Instead, Jesus is met by his own people with persecution. He's being stiff-armed and dismissed and rejected. They continue to ignore and would not receive Jesus. Now, perhaps they would have if Jesus was the kind of Messiah that they were hoping for, the kind of Messiah that would fill their bellies and cure all of their diseases, and free them from Roman political oppression, and I'm sure they would have been happy to receive that type of Messiah. But that isn't why Jesus came. That wasn't Jesus' purpose. See, Jesus was focused on accomplishing the will of the Father. He had a divinely appointed mission with far more significant implications. Unfortunately, that reality was lost on these Pharisees, See, as spiritually dead men, they couldn't behold the eternal glory of Christ. And so it is with all men apart from the divine intervention of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. See, apart from his saving grace, we are all blind to the glory of Christ. See, in Matthew chapter 7, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he puts forth this really harsh truth that a lot of people don't like to accept. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, Jesus says this, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And this is what I want you to pay attention to. Jesus says this, there's only going to be a few that find it. There's only going to be a few that find it. So this is a reminder to each of us that the great majority of humanity will indeed reject Jesus Christ. And these men were amongst that number. They denied him. They refused to acknowledge Jesus. But I also want you to understand that rejection of Jesus is not exclusive to these men or the nation of Israel. We don't have to go far to see a continued rejection of Christ even in our day. It's evident as we look at the world, as we look at culture and society the people have little to no desire to give glory to Christ they're not living lives that are in obedience to Jesus and bringing glory to his name stin said the culture presents this message of one that is self-centered one that is self-aggrandizing one that centers around elevating me and again this is an idea that we'll talk about a little bit more in just a minute because Jesus is going to address this specifically With these men, brothers and sisters, again, this is why we must be dedicated to going forward and with the gospel and pushing back against the culture, being a light to the world. We must understand that every single day there are men and women perishing apart from Christ Jesus. They're buying into the lies of the culture, rejecting Jesus, thinking that they can get to God their own way. We must remember who people are apart from Christ Jesus, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. See, and the Apostle Paul was so good about this, constantly reminding as he wrote his uh, epistles, as he wrote letters to the churches in the New Testament that we find in the New Testament, he was consistent about reminding them of who they were. And this is what he says. I just want to read. Just, this comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. Ladies and gentlemen, apart from Jesus Christ, that is all of us. That is our condition. And there's no glory to God in that. That's why people reject the Savior, the hardness of heart that Paul points to there. So Jesus is pointing to that reality. He says, I don't receive glory from people. They hadn't honored him. But I think Jesus is saying something else here in verse 41. He's also teaching us an incredible truth about himself and the glory that he has. You see, Jesus says, glory is not derived from whether or not you praise or honor him. The nature of his glory isn't contingent upon you ascribing it to him. His glory is inherent as the second person of the Trinity, as one who is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father from the very beginning. He doesn't need us to give him glory in order for him to have glory. In fact, the Lord Jesus doesn't need to receive glory from mankind because he is eternally glorified by God the Father. See, in chapter 1 of John's gospel, he writes this. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, that is a reminder that Jesus' glory is derived not from mankind, but from his eternal and divine nature, his preeminence as the Son of God. Now, obviously, as Jesus comes and it's the incarnation, right, and he performs these miraculous signs and he has powerful and authoritative preaching, of course, his glory is on display. But Jesus uh, had glory that was uh, radiant and full before he ever comes to earth. Jesus' glory isn't just manifest or isn't birthed or originated in the incarnation when he comes to earth. Jesus has always been glorious. He's altogether and eternally lovely and glorious, right? In John chapter 17, these are the words of Christ, and this is what he says. John 17, verses 4 and 5. He says, I glorified you on earth, talking to God the Father. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Friends, Jesus has always been glorious. His glory is not determinant based on what you think or make of him. His glory isn't derived from how we feel about Jesus. He has always been and always will be altogether eternally glorious. See, in verse 42, Jesus now shifts the conversation slightly, and Jesus addresses the heart of the Jewish rejection and their refusal to come to him. He says, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Well, how in the world does Jesus know that? How does he know they don't have the love of God in them? Well, verse 43, he says, Because I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. And as I stated earlier, this is incredibly offensive. This isn't nice or endearing. This isn't Jesus exchanging pleasantries with these guys. He's not being safe. He's not talking nicely. He's talking truthfully and forcefully to these guys. You have to understand why this flies in the face of everything they believe. Telling a bunch of men who had dedicated their lives to God, who had committed themselves to studying the scriptures day and night. They worshiped in the temple religiously. They gave their tithe. They were esteemed by the rest of the nation. Seeking God through their tradition and their religion, it was their life. It felt like, yes, we love God. God's love is in us. Of course we know him. We know him better than anybody. How dare this man come to us from Nazareth? and tell us that we don't know the love of God, that we aren't in relationship with God the Father. How dare him say that to us? I mean, externally speaking, we, they loved uh, God more than anyone. But again, this even think back to the analogy of marriage, right? Even if my wife and I, before we got married, again, we could have moved in and done all of the things that married people do. That doesn't make us married. There's something required for that uh, relationship to be legitimized. And Jesus is telling them, I don't care how much you pray or read the scriptures. If you deny me, you don't know God and you're not in relationship with him. Period. End of discussion. See, Jesus says, I know. And this is, again, a demonstration of Jesus' intimate knowledge of every man's heart of all of our motives and intentions. You see, just as he knew their hearts, he knows ours too. Church, you can't fool God. Amen? Amen. Amen. See, he read these men. Despite all of the things that they did externally, their religious practices, their constant study of the scriptures, he knew their hearts were devoid the love of God. He says, I came in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. See, again, here's Jesus, this long-awaited Messiah, the serpent crusher promised in Genesis 3, the deliverer of God's people, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Here he is standing before these men, and they would not have him. See, what we learn from Jesus' statement here is something that's monumental, something we must hold on to. And that is that the rejection of Christ is the rejection of God. Or stated positively, if you truly love God, you will love his son, Jesus Christ. You see, John the apostle writes about this elsewhere as well. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, he writes this, and this is his, being God, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. So John is pointing again to that truth. What does God call men to do? To believe in his son, Jesus Christ. Or later in John's gospel in chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus says to the Pharisees, so here's Jesus again And he's even doubling down on this. This is even more forceful. So he's having a conversation with these men, and they're uh, essentially trying to rebuke Jesus, saying that, hey, you're the one who was birthed in sexual impurity, right? Your mother was pregnant before her and your dad were ever married. Hey, we're sons of Moses. Matter of fact, we're actually sons of God. And then this is what Jesus says to them. He says, if God were your father, you would love me. You would love me if you actually knew God. That's stated Plainly, See, there's an inseparable relationship between acknowledging Christ and communion with God. God requires that we bow and acknowledge his son. We must believe in Jesus in order to appropriately worship God. You see, this truth was a stumbling block to these Jewish leaders. But again, not just them. Unfortunately, the exclusivity of Jesus has been the undoing of billions, the undoing of billions. You see, Jesus is an an uncomfortable and an inconvenient truth that people attempt to avoid as they pursue God and spirituality. You see, the sad reality is there are many who claim to be on these spiritual journeys who say that they're pursuing God their way, as if we somehow get to determine the right way to pursue creator God. You see, there are all these new religions and these worldly philosophies that are masquerading as the way to God. All of these people on their spiritual journeys never realizing that they're headed for death and destruction apart from Christ. You see, they'll live these Wonderful, these morally excellent lives, and they'll still perish eternally. Listen, achieving Zen or enlightenment or just being a really nice person to everybody doesn't save anybody. Moralism saves no one. See, what's happened is that men, just like these Jewish leaders, men have created their own systems and they've carved out their own paths to God. However, Christ makes it plain. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through me. That's about as clear a statement as you can make. There's no confusing that reality. There's no twisting or misconstruing Jesus' words. He makes it clear that a man's journey to God begins and ends with him. Brothers and sisters, this is a truth that we cannot compromise. Jesus is the centerpiece to God's plan for salvation and the redemption of the lost. He is the only way to God. Amen? Yet here we see Christ the Son rejected by his own who would refuse to receive him. And Jesus continues his discourse with them. He continues to shed further light on the issue of their rejection in the second half of verse 43, which brings me to point number two. We see the desire for man's glory. See, Jesus says they won't receive him. He says, they'll receive others who come in their own name, but they will not receive him who had come in the name of the Father. So who are these others that Jesus is referring to? Well, he's referring essentially to these false messiahs, those who would come in making these false messianic claims. Now, according to Jewish historians, there had been as many as 64 false messiahs that had come over the centuries. There were those who came before Jesus, claiming to be the Savior and the Messiah, and there will be those who come after Jesus, claiming to be the Savior and the Messiah. And in fact, the Lord Jesus says we can expect that as the end draws near, right? In Matthew 24, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says this, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Church, this serves as a reminder to us as the body of Christ. Do not be fooled. There is one Messiah. There is only one who has been sent by the Father and has the power to save and redeem his people. There is no other Savior except Jesus Christ. He is an all-sufficient Savior. His perfect obedience, his sinless life, his atoning work on the cross, his life, his death, his resurrection, none of it is deplete in any way that we would require an additional Savior. We only need Christ. He is enough. He is the one and only Savior. But again, unfortunately, these men would not receive him. Again, they're exposing the hardness of their hearts. And the real issue was that they weren't on board with Jesus' agenda and his singular focus, which was to only attribute glory to God. You see, they would have gladly accepted a Savior or Messiah that came and attributed glory to them, that praised them for their commitment to the Scriptures and their faithful obedience to the law and their love of their religion. They would have loved the Savior that came and affirmed them, but that's not what Jesus was about. He was solely about giving glory to God. See, looking at verse 44 here, Jesus says there was an obstacle preventing them from belief in him. There is something hindering them from giving him the glory that he is due, and it was their own desire for glory. You see, these men of honor and prestige, the spiritually elite of their day, they were revered and esteemed because of their piety. But unfortunately, they had an overwhelming desire to glorify themselves. See, they loved the praise that came from men. They wanted to be honored. They wanted to be elevated. This was what the Pharisees were about. They were devoutly religious men, but they loved to be praised. You see, and Jesus even alludes to this in Matthew 23, verses 5 through 7. And he says this as he's talking about the religious leaders of his day. He says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts, and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. See, this is what motivated these men. And this is what kept them from acknowledging and surrendering to Christ. They had a commitment to their own glory, the glory that comes from men. And so Jesus says, well, how can you believe? How can you believe if this is the glory that you're seeking, the glory of men? So they had no desire to submit to Christ or to worship him in any way at all. They wanted glory for themselves. So, church, here's a great place for us to pause, for us to stop and reflect and make this personal, if you will. Let's ask ourselves this question, whose glory am I seeking? Is it the glory of God or is it glory for me? Am I committed to the glory of Christ or am I committed to my own glory? Am I motivated by the affirmation of men? It's a great place for us to really pause and consider these things. And, you know, as I think about it, I think it's really easy for us, even as we begin with really good intentions, right, and we're doing all of the things that we're supposed to do and with this hope of attributing glory to God to get sidetracked, it's really easy to blur the lines here. Right? We may have had the best of it intentions, but many times we lose sight of our life's purpose. See, my purpose to live as a man of God is to point others to the glory of God, not to me. Right? That's our purpose as the church, is to demonstrate God's glory throughout the ends of the earth to all of creation. Our lives are for the purpose of the glorification Christ, the good things that we do, living lives that are worthy of him. Jesus even points to this in Matthew 5. He says, in the same way, I think we all know this verse, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Is that what drives us? Is it God's glory that motivates us? When people look at you and they look at your life, do you want them to praise you and pat you on the back? Or do you want them to give glory, praise, and honor to the God that created you and to the Savior who's given his life for you? Hey, listen, I just, I'm going to keep it real with you right now. I am not above the implications of this text either. These are questions that I must consistently wrestle with and ask myself, right? Especially as I stand right up here, right? It feels really good when people tell you how great you're doing as a preacher, as a father, as a husband. That feels wonderful. And we have to constantly combat that because that's not what I'm here for. When I'm dead and gone, I want people to remember the grace of God. Not how great Brandon was. That, that matters very little. That matters very little. See, the reality is that what Christ says to these men here would suggest that you can't do both. Right? That these ideas are actually at odds with one another. You can't both seek the glory of God and seek the glory of men, right? Jesus says, how can you believe? Again, that's a hindrance. That's an obstacle. You can't seek God's glory while simultaneously seeking to be applauded and affirmed by men. You're robbing God of the glory that only he is due. Furthermore, it's just a a walking contradiction of all that Jesus teaches, Never once does Jesus tell his disciples to seek glory for themselves. In fact, he tells them quite the opposite. He says that the greatest among you is the one who's what? A servant. He constantly is preaching humility and lowering ourselves. For these men, they wouldn't have it. They only would deny and reject Jesus. And again, the issue lies in their unregenerated hearts hearts that desired the glory of self more than anything. Jesus says, this is what's keeping them from believing in me as Lord. It doesn't matter the amount of testimonies Jesus presents, the amount of evidences. He could have done a million miracles in their presence. As long as they desired to glorify self and see their name in lights, they couldn't honor or receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Listen, as you sit here this morning, as you consider these things, maybe God's revealing to you that you've been consistently seeking glory for yourself. Maybe you are one who's in love with the glory of mankind. If God's revealing that to you this morning, man, praise God for the quickening of the Holy Spirit. And now's an opportunity for you to stop to repent and to turn to Christ and to go forward from this day seeking his glory. His glory is the only glory that's worthy. The glory that comes from men is so temporary. It's so fickle. It just, it's it's meaningless. Attribute glory to God. That's the purpose of humanity. That's why God has given us this life. See, the Lord is honored not when we seek glory from others, but when we seek the glory that comes from God. And what is the glory that comes from God? The glory that comes from God is found in the radiance of Christ. It's found in his perfect son, receiving and acknowledging him, honoring him as Lord and Savior. When we seek Jesus and his glory, that is seeking the glory that comes from God finally, we'll move on to our final point for the morning, point number three. And this is the indictment of Moses and the Scriptures. So Jesus says here, beginning at verse 45, he says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? See, denying Christ and failing to seek the honor and glory that comes from God is indeed worthy of the just judgment of God, especially for these men because they had ample evidence. And that's what we're getting to. That's what Jesus is pointing at here. These men are without excuse. They had studied the scriptures. They had given their lives to studying the word of God. Here they are rejecting the promised Messiah. See, denying the glory of God is worthy of just and righteous judgment. However, Jesus says to these men, he doesn't need to accuse them for their rejection. He says, instead, there's one who will indict you, and it's Moses, the one you've devoted yourself to, the one you've put all of your hopes in. I'm sure these men were stunned by Jesus' words. I mean, on what grounds would Moses accuse us? I mean, this dude is really outrageous. The stuff that he's saying is just ridiculous. How could Moses indict us? How could he accuse us? I'm sure these men were enraged at the words of Jesus. Jesus says, Moses will accuse you, the one whom you've placed your hope in. Let's pause right here for a moment. How in the world had they placed their hope in Moses? Well, again, they're devoutly religious men, and they'd given their lives to studying the Scriptures, particularly the first five uh, books of the Bible, right? The law, the Torah, the Pentateuch, all written by Moses. They spent their time studying these books. They loved the law of God and were committed to studying it. So needless to say, they had an undying allegiance to Moses as the writer of these first five books of the Bible. In fact, in John chapter 9, Jesus gives sight to this blind man, and the blind man begins to worship Jesus and follow him. And then this is what it says in John chapter 9, verse 28, and this is speaking of the Pharisees, because they come to this dude, and of course they begin to rebuke him. And it says they reviled him, that being the blind man, they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. See, these men had committed themselves to studying the law, committed themselves to Moses, so much so that they had their hope for justification, for being right before God with their study of their scriptures and following the words of Moses. Brothers and sisters, salvation is not found in Moses. Salvation isn't even found in devoutly studying your Bible. Now, you should. Don't, please don't walk out of here and think I'm telling you not to read your Bible. Amen? Please study your Bible. Are we everyone good with that? Yes. Praise God. Yes, amen. See, but there's no salvation found in Moses or simply reading the Bible. See, these men had misplaced their hope. And brothers and sisters, this is the consistent folly of man. This is where so many people stumble and falter. We set our hope on all of these other things as if they have the power to save, whether it's trusting in good works, all the good that you do, or trusting in what we call our spiritual disciplines, right? Reading the Bible and devoting ourselves to prayer and serving in the church. All good things, all things that we're supposed to do. None of those things can save you. They can't justify you before God. So don't put your hope in those things. The only hope that we have, and it's a certain one, is the righteousness of Christ Jesus. See, if we've anchored our hopes and our aspirations anywhere else, we're like the foolish man who has built his house on the sand. There's no hope outside of Jesus Christ. These Pharisees had hoped in Moses and they hoped in the Scriptures. Meanwhile, the way to eternal life is standing right in front of them. The hope for humanity is in their midst. They were too blind and too hard-hearted to receive him. So what does Jesus do for their rejection? He issues a further indictment on these men. He says, and if you really believed Moses and you believed what the scriptures claim, then you would believe me, for Moses wrote of me. Now here again, Jesus gives us this staggering truth. He tells them that the law, that the law is a witness to himself that even the law that they committed themselves to study is actually pointing to him. Brothers and sisters, don't don't miss that. Don't miss the purpose, the greater purpose of God's law. See, God didn't give the law to his people in order to save them. The law was actually given to reveal our desperate need for a savior. It reveals our wickedness and our sinful nature, the sinful dispositions of our hearts. You see, the law is actually a good and glorious thing. It was given by God to lead them to life, so to speak. It's to really show them and to show us how we are to live rightly in the world that God created. How we are to live as his people saved and set apart for his glory. However, the law in and of itself has no power to save. It only exposes and condemns us. It shows us how incredibly short we fall of God's glorious standard. And so what Jesus is telling us here is that even the law points to the glories of Christ. You see, the whole of the Old Testament scriptures, they're pointing us forward to this one climactic moment. You see, the law and the prophets, it's all advancing the grand narrative of God's story that culminates in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. See, if you understand that Jesus is the message and the substance of God's story, it changes the way that you read the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Man, it's kind of like having a cheat sheet because you, you already know how it ends. If you know Jesus is the risen king, then you now start to understand what everything else is about, including the law. And see, what Jesus does here is he even makes this link, this connection to his words and the writings of Moses in verse 47, and he's essentially saying, listen, to reject one is to reject the other. To believe one is to believe the other. How can you believe my words? You don't even believe what Moses wrote. See, again, that's an indictment, a staggering indictment on these men. They don't actually believe what they claim to believe. They didn't understand or uh, realize the Scriptures as they ought, as they claim to, because if they did, they would recognize the Savior standing in front of them that they had spent their lives reading about. They wanted nothing to do with him. It says to reject what Moses writes. It's also rejecting the words of Christ. It's all one and the same. It is linked here together. And I also want to stop here for a minute. I think this is really important for me to say. I hope for all of us in here that call ourselves Christians, believers that love God and his word. I hope that Christ's endorsement of the Old Testament is an encouragement to you. And that you are able to see the need for the entire canon of Scripture. That you don't just read the New Testament and the Gospels, but you actually go back and read the Old Testament as well. Don't separate the two and just read the one, right? There are so many treasures, jewels in the Old Testament. Jesus quotes the Old Testament scriptures with great confidence. I hope that gives you confidence in that as well. It is glorious. There's beautiful passages found in those Old Testament writings. Don't dismiss those. Don't overlook them. Again, Jesus says, though, that Moses wrote of me. Now, obviously, Moses wasn't the only Old Testament author who wrote of Christ. The Lord Jesus simply uses the example of Moses here because the Pharisees and Jews had set their hopes on Moses and all that he wrote, all the while rejecting the one whom he wrote about. Again, they failed to see the greater reality to which they were being directed, and that is the Lord Jesus. So Christ says, you don't believe me. You don't believe my words. You don't believe Moses' words. They didn't get it. And what Jesus says is that underneath their rejection and dismissal of Christ is, and their inability to receive him as Lord and Savior is really the sin of unbelief. See, Jesus categorizes this rejection as unbelief. He says, how can you believe? And again, as we study the book of John, that's going to be central to this gospel is this idea of belief. And Jesus says, how can you believe? So he's essentially saying that they're in the sin of unbelief because they won't receive him. See, what these men needed was new and believing hearts. They didn't need to go study the scriptures anymore They just needed to understand what they were reading was actually about Christ. What they needed was for the work of the Holy Spirit to penetrate their hearts, give them new believing hearts, transform minds that would accept Jesus Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior. They needed eyes to see the one that was standing in front of them. They needed to understand that Jesus was the only way to eternal life. As we prepare to close our time, again, I think it's important that we don't overlook this one essential truth. We see the connection between Moses' writings and the words of Christ, and we see that it all originates from God. See, what Jesus says is what God has said. What Moses writes is what he's been divinely inspired to write. And again, it all points to Jesus. So as we prepare to close, what's the one essential truth, again, that I want you to take away from our time together this morning? And again, it's this. It's that rejection of Christ is the rejection of God. Again, think back to the analogy I've used a couple of times about a marriage between husband and wife. There's something that is required to legitimize that relationship. There's something that is required for men and women to truly and legitimately enter into the relationship of marriage. In the same way, there is something required for a person to enter into covenant relationship with God. And that something that is required is actually a someone, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the only way to God the Father, He's the only means for men and women to be justified. He's the only hope. He's the only peace that we have. Listen, if you're here this morning again and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, those who have received Jesus and accepted him as Lord and Savior, if you've been brought into the right relationship with God, man, praise the Lord for that reality this morning. I hope that compels you to a place of worship and devotion and to go forward carrying this gospel message into a lost and dying world. But To everyone else in this room, and I'd be naive to believe that everyone under the sound of my voice right now is a believer born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. If I'm wrong, praise God for that. But I'm just going to assume that there's some, someone, at least one individual in here that doesn't know Christ, that hasn't been born again. I want you to consider Jesus and consider what it means to turn your life over to him. Maybe all this time you've in your life been on some sort of spiritual journey. You say to yourself, I can make my own way to God. I'm fine. I'm a good person, I pay my taxes, I don't cheat on my spouse, I do all of the right things. Man, I even go to church services sometimes. Man, I just again want to remind you of the harsh, and I'll call it harsh reality again because it it stumbles, it causes so many people to stumble and it's so inconvenient, and it's so uncomfortable to so many people, the only way to God is through Christ his son. So if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus this morning, if you're not pursuing God through his son Jesus, I would encourage you to do that right now. Right now. Find me, Pastor Tyler, Pastor Gabe, Pastor John, one of our members. We'd be more than happy to spend time with you to pray with you, to help you understand what it means to have a faithful relationship with Christ. Don't walk out of here the same way you've walked in if it's apart from Christ Jesus. You have an opportunity right now. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you. We thank you for Christ Jesus and making a way for us to be in relationship with you Lord, for apart from you and your divine intervention, apart from your saving grace and the saving glory of Christ, we are all lost. We're all doomed. So, Lord, I pray that even as we had time together this morning to study your word, Lord, that you've done the work of changing hearts. If there are any in here this morning that don't know you, God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. You would lead them to repentance. They would be born again to see the glory of Christ and walk in saving relationship with you. Lord, help us as the body of Christ, these believers right here who gather under the name Christ Covenant Fellowship, to go into the world with this truth, that the exclusive path to God is Jesus Christ. Help us to share that boldly. Help us to share it truthfully and courageously for your glory and for the good of a lost and dying world. And I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.